Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, we talk a lot about women in traditionally male office cultures, but a number of professions are female-dominated, and they have been for a long time, and they bring their own challenges. What the analysis has really showed is that there's just a lower value placed on work done in an occupation with a higher number of women. When women start doing work that work becomes undervalued and underpaid. Still, working mostly with members of your own sex can be rewarding in other ways. All the women I work with have quite a feminist angle to it. We are very aware as a team of the need for women to help each other and to work together. Coming up, we take a look at the female-dominated workplace. I spoke to three guests for today's show. One is a sociologist, two are listeners on different continents. Each of them works largely with other women. Each has things they like about it and things they wish they could change. We're going to start in London. My name is Lucy Goulet and I work for a British luxury fashion company and I also run a website called Women in Foreign Policy about gender equality in foreign policy. Lucy was born and raised in France. She came to London to go to university and she's been there ever since. Her site, Women in Foreign Policy, it's a bit like the broad experience in that she took it up on top of her other work because it's something she's always been passionate about and she wanted to be more deeply involved in it. Now, foreign policy is an area with few women. Fashion, on the other hand, is full of them. And fashion marketing has been Lucy's day job for six years. She doesn't feel comfortable telling tales about her firm, but she points out something that's common in female-dominated workplaces. You won't find many women in the top jobs. I think it can be frustrating sometimes as women to see that a lot of the decision-making process still sits with men. There's a couple of examples in fashion without, you know, speaking directly to my companies. There's, I don't know if you've seen the September issue, which is that documentary about Vogue in the US where, you know, clearly Anna Wintour is a really powerful uh, force in fashion. And then when you watch the September issue, you realize that actually, ultimately, she answers to the powers that be at Condé Nast. And you see her go into a room and all the people in that room are men. So I think it's quite quite a recurrent thing in fashion. And in plenty of other professions as well. We'll get to the why a little later. Lucy says one aggravating thing about working in her industry is other people's attitudes. You talked about fashion being a field that isn't, isn't taken particularly seriously in general. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if you go to people like, for instance, I do 
as I said at the start, I do a lot in foreign policy. And at the beginning, when people, when I mentioned to people that I worked in luxury fashion, they used to find it very amusing, you know, to just think it was a bit of a fad or something not very serious. Whereas working in marketing and like all those things we do, it's, you've got big stakes involved, whether in terms of, you know, money, for instance, it's, it's a really huge company. But I think because it has to do with clothes and like people still have this thinking that you can't be serious and be interested in clothes. I mean, you know, there was that whole debate earlier this year or last year. I think you had articles which actually questioned whether you could be a smart woman and be interested in clothes or that that was the sort of gist of it. And even though it's 2016 and you would hope that we've moved away from this, I don't think we have. There's been a lot written about British Prime Minister Theresa May and her love of high fashion, and she is one serious woman. If she can't change that perception, I don't know who can. Now, maybe you're someone who's had a bad experience working with other women. It happens. It's a stereotype about women that they're nastily competitive at work, undermining each other. We've talked about this on the show before. But of course, that's not the whole story. I've had brilliant experiences working with and for other women, and I've had bad ones. It's your whole career, really, that you've been working in this female-dominated arena. So maybe you can't necessarily compare it to working with lots of men. But what's it, what does it feel like working with predominantly women? Do you like it? Are there, are there things that you love about it? I like it because I think that all the women I work with have quite a feminist angle to it. For instance, I, I read Feminist Fight Club. Feminist Fight Club is a new book by journalist Jessica Bennett. And I turned up to the office with it and I posted quite a few quotes from it on Instagram. And some of some of my colleagues have now borrowed it and quite a few of them have read it. And I think that we are very aware as a team of like the need for women to help each other and to work together. So I really enjoy that. I, I know that, I mean, you know, I've heard some women saying that women are the worst to work with because they're really bitchy and undermining towards each other. But I haven't experienced this in a gender way. I think that you have people who are undermining and bitchy to each other. And, you know, when they are, I don't think it's because of their gender. I just think it's because of their personality. She's found her female workplace to be very supportive. But she says structural problems remain. Fashion as a whole is not the best paying industry and I think part of it has to do with the fact that obviously it's very in demand and you know there's always that thing that if there's 20 people to applying for every job there's less of an incentive to pay people incredibly incredibly well although not that I can complain about my salary but I think that as a whole fashion tends to pay less than other industries and for me it goes back to the fact that it's not taken that seriously because it's a women dominated field. I wanted to talk about all this with someone who knows the research. Marianne Cooper is a sociologist. She's based at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. She's also the author of a book about inequality in the US called Cut Adrift. 
first, I asked her about the positive stuff. What are the benefits when women work largely with other women? So when women work in units with more women, they report lower levels of things like gender discrimination and harassment, um, higher levels of what we would call group cohesiveness, you know, enjoying interacting with other people and coworkers, considering them friends, and also expressing strong organizational commitment. So commitment to their their jobs or their or their companies. And overall lower levels of disagreement and and conflict. I was interested to hear that part about women being more committed to the job when they work with more women. I wondered why. It may be related to when there's more women working together, there's, um, you know, more, perhaps more social interaction and and often, you know, friendships and, and things like that, that can, of course, when you're friends with the people you work with, you're more committed precisely because you're friends with them. And staying in a job for a long time can be a good thing. But sometimes you need to leave to get to the next stage of your career or to up your salary. And all those friendly relationships can hold you back. Next, Marianne got to the less good stuff and one of the points Lucy raised. Even in these female-dominated occupations, men still are often overrepresented in leadership. And it's almost more glaring in those kinds of environments because the staff is largely female. So why does this happen? Well, uh, it's an interesting thing. And uh, what sociologists have pointed out is that when men enter female-dominated jobs or occupations, um, what they experience is something that uh, sociologist uh, Christine Williams at University of Texas at Austin, uh, she coined the term the glass escalator, which are invisible pressures that men have um, to move up in in their profession. So when men are in a female-dominated occupation, within that occupation, there can be roles that are seen as more fitting for a man, like administrative roles or leadership roles, because we tend to think men are a better fit for those kinds of roles. So men can be um, encouraged to take that next step up to leadership or offered opportunities, or sometimes even men themselves can experience kind of an internal conflict of a feeling like I know I'm in a female dominated job and um, doesn't quite fit with who I think I am. And I'm going to move up into a position that is more culturally male. That's not explicitly the thought process that a lot of men have, but it just feels like the right move. And so then that's how you end up getting these really odd um, situations, like in teaching, for example, where women make up, it's about 76% of teachers, but only half of principals and only a quarter of superintendents. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I've thought about that a lot. And one of my, somebody who, who wrote to me, who's been a teacher her whole life said, um, and she's in uh, younger childhood education. And she said, I'd go so far as to say a male who wanted to teach young children is looked at askance. She said, I had a director tell me point blank, she wouldn't hire a male teacher because she didn't think the parents would like it, which is so interesting. Sure. And it's it's true that um, just as women can experience gender bias trying to get into male-dominated occupations, men can as well. And, and there's definitely studies showing there's like resume studies that are sent out or, or job application studies. And when men apply for traditionally female jobs, particularly in child care, they don't get the callback rate that women do. And it's related to our beliefs about what men and women are good at. And women are thought to be good at caretaking and nurturing. And when men do that, there's a suspicion about what their motives may be. Last year, I read a piece in a business magazine about male nannies in New York. Apparently, there's a growing call for them. 
but they're still unusual. Marianne says kids are growing up, seeing men and women doing certain jobs, and they begin to imagine themselves on those same paths. But what's interesting, too, is how easily jobs can be reinterpreted along gendered lines. And there's a great book by Robin Leidner, another sociologist, and she studied fast food restaurants. And, you know, in some restaurants, men were at the stove cooking the hamburgers because it's kind of a a tough job. You might get burned. And in other places, women made the hamburgers because women cook. Right, so pretty easily we can uh, gender jobs and and most uh, most jobs in different ways depending on what we choose to emphasize and de-emphasize. Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Several listeners have got in touch with me over the years about their work in female-dominated areas. I've heard from nurses, teachers, social workers, and one topic they've all raised is pay. One woman asked, how do we disentangle the relationship between profession and gender when gender is why the profession started with such a low status? I wanted to ask Marianne about this. Now, at this point in our conversation, we ran into some serious technical hurdles. We ended up having to finish our discussion on the phone. So that's why you'll hear a difference in voice quality. So in general, occupations that have a higher number of women, they tend to pay less, even when you're controlling for things like education and skill requirements and things like that. And what the analysis has really showed is that there's just a lower value placed on work done in an occupation with a higher number of women. Um, So it's not that um, the work inherently should be lower paid. It's that when women start doing work, a certain kind of work, that work becomes undervalued and underpaid. And that kind of analysis has just showed that in certain occupations that have gone from, you know, more male to more female, you see a decline in pay over time. As with teaching, for instance, that began as a male profession and flipped in the 19th century. She says female-dominated professions are a story of social class and race, and which groups of women have always worked more. Women have always worked, and the fact that we don't have that as a cultural narrative just shows the larger beliefs that really women shouldn't be working, and they should just be more taking care of families and other things. But women have always worked, and some groups have always needed to work for economic reasons. But typically, because of ideas about men being breadwinners and providing for their family, even when women are doing that work, they're not granted that same sort of belief that we should pay them a wage to support the family. And we see that today in the fatherhood bonus. Uh, Research has found that when evaluators are looking at a resume between um, a father and a a man who's a non-father, very similar, they'll give the father uh, a higher salary 
And in contrast, when your evaluators are comparing resumes of a mom and a woman who doesn't have children, the mom is offered less salary. So these beliefs about uh, who works, who contributes money to the family, and, and who provides, and those are still bound up with very traditional gender ideologies. But again, she says, it's amazing how quickly we can alter our thinking on this stuff. When we needed women to work in World War II, all of a sudden we had childcare and women could work in factories and all that kind of stuff. And then when men came home and needed jobs, we stopped thinking that. So it, it, mm. the malleability is what is actually interesting because it shows how fast we can really change these things when we want to. But perhaps when it comes to one area, caring for others we're not so quick to change our ideas. Recently, I heard from a woman who works in Silicon Valley, but she's not developing the latest app. She works in social services with young people at risk of dropping out of the education system. All her colleagues are women. She says software engineers get paid three times as much as she does, and she wonders why her work with other people is so much less valued. Care work in general is devalued caring for people, um, doing that, that work of, of feeding children and caring for the elderly and all of that, it's, it's devalued work. And it's people who work in these jobs, they often are getting paid less than anybody else, even though it's the work that keeps our world and our society going. It's a big contradiction. And any job that seems to be related to caring, um, particularly for children, tends not to be valued in, in as much as other kinds of jobs, despite the fact that we know how important it is. So you have, you have people working in preschool and daycare centers that are, are paid such low wages that even when they're working full-time, they're barely above poverty levels. So it's a value system, really. These professions that involve caring for another person in some way, they're associated with femaleness, with stuff women just do for free, because we're women, nurturers. Marianne says the only way she can see that lower pay changing, at least for some of these jobs, is if there were a shortage of workers compared to the number of people who need care. But she's not optimistic there'll be a revolution in how society sees these roles. Kayla Carden works at a university on the East Coast. She's a sexual violence prevention educator. She sees her role as very much a caring one. She's in her late 20s, and everywhere she's worked or studied has been female-dominated. My other major was community health, which was also primarily women. And definitely in women's studies, in my classes, and in women's centers, it was really celebrated as being a female space, and it was empowering and viewed as something that was positive and beneficial and spaces that were different from mixed gender spaces that new and exciting things could come out of. Now, though, in her current job, things are starting to feel different and not in a good way as far as she's concerned. She says traditionally this area of sexual violence prevention has been full of women. It makes sense. But now there's a lot of pressure to get men involved as allies and to do that, she says, everyone's being urged to lighten up, to make anti-sexual violence discussions less dark, more appealing. She says it's a tough sell. The shift I see at work is that, you know, we really need men involved because only men can reach men. Men will only listen to other men and that we really need 
to find ways to make this fun and exciting and engaging and not heavy or depressing because that's the only way men will be involved. Whereas I look around the room at myself and my colleagues and I feel very saturated in content that is not fun, is not necessarily engaging or light, but it's work I feel obligated to do. So it can definitely be frustrating the way it's framed as an expectation for women to do the heavy emotional lifting around sexual violence and then lamenting the absence of men, but their involvement being much more about them having fun and being engaged in a, in a very different way than women are. We talked about emotional labor in the last show. Kayla says there's a lot of it when you work in this realm. And she understands the need to work with men. But she says there's this whole history of female scholarship and activism in this area, and it feels like it's being shunted aside. Moving away slightly from the topic of sexual violence, because you've worked in women's spaces, you were saying, before your career took this particular turn. You were telling me when we first spoke that you really enjoyed working with a lot of other women. Why? That's a great question. I do really enjoy working with women. I enjoy women in general. I enjoy a collaborative environment. I enjoy bouncing ideas off of other people. I also enjoy not having to have an artificial separation between my personal life and my professional life. I definitely believe that the personal is political and I can do better work professionally when I'm able to bring my whole self, including my personal life, including my personal opinions and beliefs into my work. And I've found that often in female-dominated spaces, that is something that can happen. I mean, do you mean just talking about personal stuff in the context of work sometimes? Yeah, definitely talking about personal stuff, using personal experience to inform the work that you're doing. I think, again, thinking about care. I do think, you know, the ethics of care is really valuable and important in a workplace, and oftentimes it can be pushed to the side. So I I think caring is important. I think it should be part of our work. I, I do think attending to emotional well-being should be part of a professional workplace. Yeah, I do find that to be more common when there are women and when women can be in charge and women can set the tone. What do you think? If you work with lots of other women, does that jibe with your experience? I'd love to hear from you if any of this rings a bell or if your experience has been quite different from what we've talked about today. As usual, you can comment at thebroadexperience.com or on the show's Facebook page, or you can email me. That's The Broad Experience for this time. Thanks to Kayla Carden, Marianne Cooper and Lucy Goulet for being my guests on this show. And a big thanks to all those of you who have supported the podcast with a donation this year, or maybe you give a monthly amount. I'm really grateful. I also love hearing from listeners. This is a one-woman show, and your support helps keep me going, mentally and otherwise. To donate, just go to the support tab at thebroadexperience.com. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. See you later in January. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 